All right. Now, in Romans, I'm going to uh, read a small passage as the transition text, and then you'll take a seat, and we'll be continuing through the book of Romans. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 are the conclusion of what we went through last time. And they read as follows. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, this is on page 3, forgive me, this is on page 3 of the handout if you need to look at that. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You may be seated. Alright, so we go into chapter 3, verses 21 through the end of chapter 5. That section is the section on justification. Chapters 6 through 8 are the section, is the section focused on sanctification. These are two words that you must know and you must know them well. You have to know the difference between justification and sanctification. If you mix them, if you misdefine them, you are likely to have another gospel. If you mix them, you do have another gospel. If you mix them, you do have another gospel. If you misdefine them, you are likely to end up with another gospel. So, justification. Page 3. You see there I have quoted the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 33. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, let's look at page 4. I've got the quote, What is sanctification? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 35. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So let's compare and contrast those for a moment. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. Justification is an act of God's free grace. What is the point of the difference between those words? An act is a punctiliar event. It occurs in time. It's a once sort of thing. A work is ongoing. Justification occurs once and it cannot be taken away. Any heresy you hear that says that there are multiple justifications for you to be just before God, that is another gospel. It's another gospel. Justification occurs once. It is an act. It is punctiliar. Justification occurs at the moment that you are given 
the gift of faith. You are justified in time at the moment that God gives you the gift of faith. And you cannot lose it. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It begins at the same moment. The first act of the series of acts that will occur throughout your life is when God gives you faith. So when God gives you faith, He justifies you as a punctiliar event. And He starts sanctification. The gift of faith is the moment of justification and it is the start of sanctification. Now, as a work, it's ongoing through our lives. And in sanctification, we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. So, you are transformed inwardly. You're renewed. You're strengthened. You're given newness. You're rebuilt, edified. There is this process of renewal, of remaking. Justification is not about what goes on in you. Justification is outside of you. Justification is God's pardoning of all our sins. Justification includes God's accepting us as righteous in His sight. With justification, we are thinking about a judge giving you a trial and saying, not guilty, and in fact, righteous. In sanctification, it's the changing of the inward man. Justification is a judgment of God. It is grounded, based upon the merits of Christ. He has a legal finding. The finding is innocent and in fact righteous. He looks at you and he says, you are righteous. If that makes you uncomfortable a little bit, it's because you're thinking about your standing based upon your own merits. Which, here's a secret, you don't have any. If you think about that and it makes you joyous, you are either deluded that you have a righteousness that is your own, or you rightly believe that Jesus Christ perfectly kept the law in your place and stead. Now, God counts us righteous in justification because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So He, in His law order, in His law code, moves on the ledger from the account of Christ to our account. He grants title to us over the righteousness of Christ. So it's a legal thing. It's outside of us. And we receive that righteousness by faith alone. That's not because faith is meritorious. 
It's not because your believing is counted as good enough. It's not because your believing meets some minimum bar of God saying, you know, keeping the law real hard, believing, easier. If you just believe, just I'm gonna, we're going to have an affirmative action bar. And we're just going to say, for the sons of Adam, because we know you guys need the help, we're going to lower the bar. You just got to step over, just tippy-toe over. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not that you need to go over this minimum bar that's really low. The gospel is you can't go over the bar because you're dead. You're dead. You are incapable of going over the bar. But God is going to resurrect you. He's going to give you faith. And not on the basis of that resurrection, but on the basis of Christ going over the bar. The bar that reaches to heaven. He went over it. He fulfilled it. And on the basis, on the grounds of His meeting the standard. Because of what He did in your place as your representative, as your federal head, on that ground, you're counted as righteous. So, not our righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness because it's transferred to us. It's credited to us. Sanctification. You have the renewal after the image of God. That renewal makes it so that we are able more and more to stop sinning and start obeying the law. That obedience to the law, that imperfect obedience to the law, is not the basis, not the grounds, not the legal, meritorious thing by which we are counted as righteous. So the difference between justification and sanctification, I hope I've made the difference stark to you. Justification is a single act in time. Sanctification is a process that goes on throughout your life. Justification is us being counted righteous before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone. Sanctification is the inward renewal whereby we sin less and we do righteousness more. Those two things, do not mix them. If you mix them, you end up with every other religion that has ever been created from the fevered brain of man. Every desire to be counted as good enough by your own merits, by what you do, by what's in you, by what you are. So Christianity allows for the display of the righteousness of God and the mercy of God. So we went through last time the basis of condemnation in chapters 1 through 3, verse 20. We're picking up now at verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. We're on page 3. We just talked about justification. It's an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So we have a vow in the church that's designed to emphasize that. Vow 5. Do you believe that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? Repent of your sin and believe that God, by grace alone, has pardoned all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in His sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by belief alone. You see where we stole the wording from? So, why the word belief? Because some people want to make faith and belief different. They're the same Greek word. 
Pistis, Pistuo. Why do people use the word faith and belief? Why do they use both? Because faithing is a grammatical error. Believing, to believe, you can't to faith. In English, there's a grammatical peculiarity with the word faith. And so we have the word believe. To believe is to have faith. To faith is a grammatical error. And the devil has made much use of that. He's made much use of that grammatical peculiarity of English to try to separate faith and belief so that you can, you'll hear some people say that just believing the gospel is not enough. That's just an intellectual exercise. They will say you have to have faith and try to make it something different from believing. So that is another false gospel. The devil has spent 6,000 years finding ways to make abstruse doctrines that can confuse people about the gospel. The gospel has been the same. It is the eternal truth in the mind of the eternal God. And it has been delivered to us from Genesis 3 forward in the same way. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of the seed of the woman alone. The Christ that was promised to us back in Genesis 3. His work. So we look at justification. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. That chunk of text, it goes and it takes what we just talked about in terms of by the law is the knowledge of sin, not justification. And it builds to say, okay, so how are we justified? Justification for fallen men is not attained by works. It's not attained by keeping the law in your own place. It's not attained by the covenant of works for yourself. It's obtained only by faith. So we have the covenant of works and the covenant of grace laid side by side. And these are going to be laid side by side over and over again in the coming texts. And this is the same way of salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile. Every kind of human being. Justifying faith is a gift from God and it's not meritorious, but rather it's only an instrument. Think about a contract. In a contract, you could say, I'm trading you widgets for dollars. When somebody signs the contract, they're not fulfilling their end of the bargain. It's a legal instrument. The signing of the contract does not merit the thing that the other party has promised. If you promise me widgets and I promise you dollars, in order to merit the widgets, I have to give you the dollars. Signing the contract does not merit the widgets. Faith is an instrument. It is a legal instrument. It is a contractual or legal tool. In the covenant of grace, God has made faith the instrument, not the meritorious cause of salvation. Guess who provides the dollars? Who provides the payment in the covenant of grace? Christ does. He provides the payment. He pays for the widgets. In this case, the widgets are the whole creation. We inherit everything as sons. And he pays with his blood. He pays with his life. He makes payment to the Father. Now, 
Verses 21 to 28 talk about the righteousness apart from works or law, but grace. Okay, so I want to read that passage. So have it open, have your Bibles open there. We're going to be flipping around to places in Romans, so have it ready. So Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Remember back to the thesis, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Okay, so we're moving from the righteousness of God in himself and the righteousness of God in his judgment of, of sinful human beings. And we're moving to the righteousness of God as it's given in the gospel. So in other words, the imputed righteousness of God. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. When you see the law and the prophets, that's a technical term for the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. That's a universal statement. What we have here is a promise that the righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. If you believe, you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. So, some people wonder, God predestines everything. How do I know if I'm elect? Do you believe the gospel? If you believe the gospel, you're elect. That's simple. Now, you know, I love the Puritans. But some of the Puritans foolishly tried to make it so it was more complex. They go, well, just believing, can you really know if you believe? I know, let's move to more things. Because making things more complex when you're trying to solve a simple problem and get a simple answer always makes it easier to get an answer, right? When you make it more complex, you always make it easier to figure out. So what they did is they said, no, 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 it's not just whether you have faith. What we need to do now is we need to examine whether or not you feel like your affections have been changed. And also, whether or not you see the fruits of righteousness in your life. And also, whether or not, okay, the more you add to it, the more you're going to find reasons why you are unworthy. Your faith does not make you worthy. If you have faith, though, if you have faith in the gospel, you are saved. Because you can't do that of your own. And any good works that you do, right? You see Hare Krishnas and Mormons and Muslims and, you know, United Way all do things that look real nice to the human eye. But unless they do them in faith, believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to apply the law of God, it's not a good work. So guess what? You don't help when you say, let's look at our fruit to determine if we're saved or not. Because in order to determine whether any action is a good work, you have to see, when I did that good work, did I have faith? So do you see how you've actually just still left it that you have to examine if you have faith or not? Because whenever you say, if I look at my good works, then I'll know I'm justified. If you do that, you still have to determine whether that work had faith in it. So you're simply expanding the complexity If you believe the gospel, you're saved. If you find yourself sinning, you have to stop yourself and ask, do I believe the gospel? You go back to the gospel when you see your guilt. The law shows you your guilt. By the law is the knowledge of sin. 
is to drive you to the gospel. When you see the grace of God, when you believe that, you repent of your sins, you believe that you've been paid for, that you've been saved, and then out of gratitude, go obey the law. That's how you express the gratitude. That's how you express your love for God as your Savior. Guilt, grace, gratitude. That is the habit of thought of the Christian life. The law shows you your guilt. The grace of God picks you up out of the pit of despair and you are now motivated out of gratitude to do good works to the glory of God. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Now, not all Puritans did that. But some of them did. So when you read them, be aware of that. If they tell you to be assured of your salvation by your works, that's a trap. It doesn't mean they have another gospel. They have a wrong view of assurance. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the laws revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. If your translation does not have the word propitiation there, just stand up and throw it out. There's a trash can right there. The word propitiation means the word propitiation means the turning away of the wrath of God and the favor of God turning toward you. If it's watered down to something else, that's an attempt to hide the wrath of God because the word propitiation implies that there's wrath. So people who do not like the wrath of God do not like the idea of God's wrath being satisfied. Don't like that word propitiation. Whom God set forth is a propitiation by His blood. Right? It's by His blood. It's a blood atonement. It's a blood propitiation. It required death to satisfy His wrath. Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God in our place, in our stead. The curse is removed. Whom God set forth is a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. To demonstrate His righteousness. The sending of Christ to pay for our sins was not principally about God pining after you. No matter how many evangelical songs say so. God sent Christ to buy you, to pay for your sins because you serve the purpose of displaying God's glory. How? You show His justice and His mercy. You show His mercy because He forgives you. You show His justice because Christ died to pay for your sins. And that shows that He cares about justice. He cares about justice. He's a just God. And His forgiveness of sins is done without abandoning justice. Whom God sent forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. 
So he needed to demonstrate his righteousness because he didn't punish. He didn't punish the sins of the elect that had come before Christ. And if he did not now send Christ, that would fail to show his justice. He'd always planned to send Christ, which was why he forbore. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just, and his declaration that you are righteous does not throw away his justice. Sending Christ to pay for your sins and to fulfill the law and provide you with a righteousness that is not your own as a covering makes it so that he is the justifier, the one who calls you just, and also he is just. This is the law order. This is the legal arrangement called the covenant of grace. The covenant of works, do this and live. We failed. Adam failed. We're corrupt from conception. We break the law every moment. The covenant of grace Jesus Christ comes as a second Adam and fulfills the law so that he can be the justifier of those who believe and also be just. It's an abomination to call the wicked righteous. This does not contradict the justice of God because of the fact that he has made payment for it. This shows the righteousness of God. So then, verses 27 through 31 show how, well, if it's not by your works and it's by faith instead, and faith is a gift and it's just the instrument, then where's your boasting? Oh, you don't have any boasting. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Right, so there's the doctrine of soli deo gloria. There's the doctrine that God alone gets the glory. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, makes it so that God alone gets the glory. Some people will sometimes criticize Calvinists and say, why are Calvinists so concerned about who gets to boast? Why do they have this boasting fetish? It's like, whoa, wait a second. God cares about who gets the glory. God cares. He made everything to display His glory. So if we care about what God cares about, we're going to care about who gets to boast. And we're going to really care that we don't get to boast. So you will have Arminians sometimes mocking this. As though, why do you care so much about who gets to boast? Why are we talking about this so much? Because it's the purpose of everything. It's important that God gets to boast. Because he made everything for his glory, to show his glory, to show how great he is, to show his justice and his mercy. And if we get to take any of the credit for our own salvation, we are stealing boasting from God, we're stealing glory from God, and that does not work out well, friend. God will not share his glory with another. The thinking that this is silly comes from a man-centered view of the world and of the gospel. And the world exists as a theater for God's glory. And the gospel is the message of God's glory with the crown of His mercy, the last attribute to be displayed. And so what we have 
is the gospel is about showing the glory of God with that attribute of his mercy. It's about the mercy of God. So, verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Do we, if justification is by faith alone, are we saying the law doesn't really matter? No, we're the only ones that take the law seriously at all. Everybody else wants to make it keepable. If somebody tells you the law is keepable, that's a heresy and they're a liar. They're trying to find a way to say, I'm without sin, or I've kept the law sufficiently. We can say the law of God is spiritual and it reaches to the inmost part. The law of God is perfect and we cannot keep it. We get to say that the law of God is a perfect standard and it shows every man but Christ to be guilty. Do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. We're the ones who take the law seriously. We're the ones who say God's law is something we have broken. And we call God just and call ourselves condemned under the law. We establish the law. To make the law keepable is to make void the law. It was keepable to Christ. And no man but Christ has kept it. So chapter 4 Page 4, verses 1 to 17 is an argument for justification by faith alone and also for the covenant of grace. And he, Paul goes through David and Abraham. And then chapter 4, verses 18 to 25, Abraham is put forward as the exemplar of justification by faith alone. Inside of that, circumcision is put forward as a sign of the covenant of grace and not of the covenant of works. Then circumcision is given explained that it's given after faith in Abraham's life in order to show that justification did not depend upon the sign of faith, but upon the reality of faith, with or without the sign. Okay, and so we can relate that to baptism. So let's look through this. Verses 1-17, through 17, Abraham's put forward. The question is, was he found according to the flesh? Was it according to human genealogy, or was it according to his own works? Um, Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. See how that connects to the previous point? But not before God. This isn't the way it really is, though. If he has something to boast about, you know, if he did something, he has something to boast about. But that's not the way it is in truth. That's not the way it is before God, who sees all things for what they are. For what do the Scriptures say? What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There is justification by faith alone from the book of Genesis. Now to him who works, the wages are not not counted as grace, but as debt. See how clearly Paul is laying out the law principles here? Contrasting the covenant of works with the covenant of grace? Anybody who tells you the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are some sort of human invention has not seriously read the book of Romans. The book of Romans so plainly lays out the two legal structures, law and grace, works and faith. 
right? He, it so clearly lays out for us the covenant of works and the covenant of grace over and over again. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. See how that's a callback to that earlier portion about how he's just and the justifier? Just and the justifier. Verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, the baptized only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul's playing with the Jewish reader here. They all know. They all know. They all know that Genesis 15 is before Genesis 17. They can count. They have read the book of Genesis. They know that this happens before circumcision is given. Circumcision is given two chapters later as a sign of the covenant. The covenant was given... Abraham believed the covenant and he was accounted as righteous. He didn't have the sign yet. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision. This verse, Romans 4.11. Romans 4.11. This single verse above any other verse so plainly reveals that circumcision is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace and not of the covenant of works, that this verse, if it rolls around in your head, you will never ever be deceived by that false view that says that Abraham received the covenant of works. If Abraham received the covenant of works, Paul's argument makes no sense. What he received was the covenant of grace. Verse 11, and he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Whether you have the sign or not, if you have the reality of faith, you are justified. Now, some people will say we should only give baptism to those who profess to believe. Because it's a sign of faith. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Baptism is a sign of faith. And so is circumcision. Romans 4.11 He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Circumcision 
represents the covenant of grace, represents faith. Baptism represents the covenant of grace, represents faith. Because it's a sign of faith, does that mean it cannot be given to children of the covenant? Circumcision was given to children of the covenant. It was commanded in its institution in chapter 17 to be given to children. And so, we know that the entry sign, circumcision, was given to children and given to those who made profession as adults. And so, in Genesis, or sorry, in Exodus, for example, at the institution of the Passover meal, there's two ways to be admitted to the table. There's two ways to be admitted to the table. Those who were raised in a believing home need to be catechized to be taught what the meaning of the Passover meal was. And after they were taught, they could be admitted to the Passover table. We're also told that there are those who were uncircumcised, and if they wanted to come to the table, they needed to be circumcised, and then they could be admitted to the table. These are the two paths to be admitted to the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant administration. You have those who are raised in a Christian home who are part of a household baptism, and then they are catechized and admitted to the table. You have those who are not raised in a Christian home who make profession as adults. They are baptized and admitted to the table. So where we have, we have the parallel. There's a feast... It's a renewal feast, and there's an entry ritual. And the entry ritual is circumcision in the Old Covenant, and it's baptism in the New. The renewal ritual in the Old Covenant is the whole sacrificial system represented principally by the Passover, and it is replaced by a simplification into the Lord's Supper. Now, in chapter 4, we conclude with the idea of the promise being granted through faith. Verse 13, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Right, so circumcision being given to children is not a symbol of the covenant of works. It's not just a symbol that Christ was going to come from the loins of Abraham. It was a symbol that was given that represented the righteousness by faith. And that symbol was given to Abraham's seed. And it represented when it was given to the seed that they would receive the inheritance through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's another key verse, verse 15 there. Chapter 4, verse 15. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. People who want to make it so that the law of God is not an obligation on you now are trying to make it so there's no difference between sin and righteousness. There's no law, there's no transgression. The law of God teaches us the difference between right and wrong. It is not keepable. It is perfect and spiritual and reaches to the inmost part. You are guilty under the law. Where should that drive you? To the gospel. That should make you grateful. So you can seek to apply the law, to do good works for the glory of God. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. 
It is of faith that it may be according to grace. It is of faith that it might be according to grace. There's a logical connection there. If it's by works, then it's by your own merit, which we were told earlier, right? It's not accounted as grace, it's accounted as debt. The legal structure here is being analyzed minutely, in detail. We're seeing the structure of the covenant of grace, and we're seeing that it's of faith so that it might be of grace. God designed the covenant of grace so that salvation is by faith so that it can be gracious. So the instrument of faith makes it so that's more clear. It displays that. It shows that it's a non-meritorious thing on our part. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Right? You're a child of Abraham if you have the faith of Abraham. Jew, Gentile, whatever your genetic makeup, if you believe the gospel... You are a child of Abraham. And you receive the inheritance promise that he received. You have a right to inherit the whole world on the grounds of Christ's righteousness because you've been adopted, because you were justified. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Right? He was, God was telling Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. How does that happen? By causing billions to come to faith across history. Perhaps trillions. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed. He believed the promises. Believing the promises, that was the instrument of his justification. Not his law keeping, not his circumcision, not his obedience. Believing the promises of God. That's what the gospel is. It's news, it's promises, it's indicative statements, it's declarative sentences, it's information revealed from the mind of God, and those who believe are justified. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Take note of that verse. It was not written for His sake alone. Chapter 4, verse 23. It was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but also for us. 
it shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now that word because of, the second because of, is regrettable. Um, sorry, the New King James has it right. Um, it's not in order to cause our justification. Other translations will have that in order to cause, but it's because of our justification. Uh, it's because we are justified. He was raised because we were justified. He's raised because we are counted as righteous because Christ already paid for us. And so Christ's death for us makes it so that His resurrection is a sign of our justification. He shows by His resurrection that His sacrifice was accepted. So the because of needs to be understood in terms of that. He was raised not in order to cause our justification, but He was raised because His death was accepted for our justification. His resurrection was a sign of the acceptance of the sacrifice. So we get into chapter 5. Chapter 5, two major sections. Verses 1 to 11, verses 12 to 21. 1 to 11 basically has a string of encouraging implications of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Here are the string of implications. If we're justified by faith alone, we have peace with God. If we have peace with God, we also have access to God through Christ's mediation. And we can rejoice in hope that we will overcome and be benefited by all sorrows. We were bought when we were sinners. Thus we have a greater hope that we are now counted as righteous and will not be let go of. Okay, so that's the idea there. Those are the things that are laid out. Verses 1 to 11. I don't like the encouraging, so I'm going to move on. Verses 12 to 21. Here we have the federal headship of Adam in the covenant of works being contrasted with Christ in the covenant of grace. This is a very important passage. This passage is the most clear passage laying out the difference between the representation of Adam and the representation of Christ. It is abundantly clear. So we're going to read it, but I also want to point out, I want to give you an overview right now. First, this text shows us that God's goal in creation is to display His glory. It also teaches us that Adam represented the race of man in the covenant of works as a way of showing the justice of God. And then it shows that Christ represents the race of man in the covenant of grace. Not all the race of man, very specifically, a sub-portion of the race of man, all those who are elect, and in his work as the representative of the elect, he makes it so that they are recipients of grace. Now, how that then uh, gives us a sense also of the fact that Christ's work is going to result in a successful dominion and discipleship of the whole world. So that provides a corporate hope. Now, what we need to deal with there, if Christ is the federal representative of the elect, why is it that anyone would ever have been circumcised and receive a symbol of that covenant if they're not represented by Christ? Why would they receive the sign? The sign serves two purposes. It's a sign of a covenant, and what covenants do... Covenants increase blessing and increase cursing. If you receive the sign in vain, which do you think is happening to you? If you receive the sign 
and have not faith and never do get faith, that sign increases curse for you. This is a theme throughout the Torah. You have blessing and cursing, blessing and cursing, blessing and cursing. The increase of curse for disbelief and disobedience. The increase of blessing for faith and for obedience. What we see is those who receive the signs and take the name of God in vain, they bring greater curse on themselves. What's the point of that? The point of it is to make more clear the justice of God in punishing the wicked who receive the ordinances and oracles of God and yet do not believe. So early on, in chapters 1-3, through you had Paul contrasting you know, even the Gentiles have their own consciences and they violate their own consciences. But the Jews, they sit under the preaching of the law. They receive the ordinances, the law order. Their guilt is made plain. And in our time, that's the visible church. We who receive the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Scriptures, the prayers to the Father in the name of the Son, we who, who have the baptism and the Lord's Supper, we who have covenants, we swear and fail to fulfill. There's an increase of curse for those who do not believe. A greater responsibility. So there's a visible covenanting. And not all who are visibly in the church, visibly in the covenant community, are those who are actual recipients of the reality. The reality of Christ. The reality of the inheritance. The sign is not the same thing as the reality. The sign sometimes is present, baptism or circumcision, with no faith. And those people have greater curse if they die without faith. And sometimes the reality is present without baptism. There are believers who have died already, who were not circumcised, were not baptized. Some people died during the time when you could have done both. Didn't have either. Still in heaven. So there's the visible church, the visible covenant community, and there's the invisible church, those who are actually saved by Christ. And we need to recognize that the sign is not the reality, and the reality is not the sign. But what should happen? What should happen is we should believe, and we should receive the signs. That's the good life. The good life is having the reality and the signs. Let's do that. Who's with me? So let's apply those things. Now, those problems of the visible and the invisible church, when we set side by side the covenant here, of works and the covenant of grace, what we're looking at is we're looking at the effectual work of Christ and not just those who receive a sign. Okay, so chapter twelve, sorry, chapter five, verse twelve. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, so the death spreads to all men because all sinned. It's not saying there that the death spread to all men because every individual acted as his own representative and sinned. That's true. Everybody sins. But it's saying, in Adam, when he sinned, we were all counted as sinning. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no, when there is no law. 
So, is Paul saying there that everybody was sinless before Moses received the law at Mount Sinai? No. He's already taught us that there's a law written on the hearts of men. We all violate that law. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. How is it different? Well, it's different. Your sin versus Adam's sin. How is that different? Well, Adam was a type of him who was to come. Adam was a representative. He was a covenant representative. He was like Christ in the sense that he represented other men in a covenant. His sin was different from ours. He acted in our place instead. We didn't act in Adam's place instead. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. By Adam's offense, death spread to all men. By Christ's gift of grace, grace abounded to many. So now we see the types. There's their representing groups. Their actions have effects for many. Verse 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So how do they differ? They're similar in that Adam represents and Christ represents. They're different in that one results in condemnation and the other results in justification. Verse 17, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So, the reigning of death versus the reigning of life. The point is that the curse that came through Adam is going to be very small compared to the blessing that comes through Christ. And the reign, the rule, the manifestation of power, the doing of works, what kinds of works come out of death? Wickedness. What kind of works come out of life? Righteousness. Which one will dominate history? Verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. Now, is that every individual man? No, it's every category. It's every nation. It's not just the Jews. It's also the Greek. It's not just the Jews. It's every Gentile nation. Resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Adam broke the law. Christ kept the law. Adam's law breaking brought curse to the race of man. Christ's law keeping as our representative brings blessing to the race of man. And there is a change in history 
that's occurring as there is a spread of the knowledge of God. As the instrument of justification, faith, spreads, more people are saved, and there's more and more a manifestation of the life that comes through Christ. Do you see how this is a super rational bridge into sanctification? And why the next section is on sanctification? Justification by Christ is going to result in life in terms of the reign of life. So that next section that we look at next week, because it didn't get enough gas in the engine, it's a steep hill. It's a real steep hill. When we look at that next week, we're going to see sanctification, the imparting of righteousness into us. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The last time I left you in despair, this time, despite my greatest efforts, I think you've been encouraged. Other comments, questions? Objections from the voting members or those with speaking rights.